Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 139 and Stan Mitchell is my guest. He came over to the house and we went and sat in the podcast room and had a very interesting conversation. Uh, I learned of Stan because a friend of mine uh, said I should watch this episode of CBS This Morning, which Stan was featured on. And I thought, okay, well, I'll check it out. And turns out my friend was right. I absolutely wanted to talk to Stan and uh, reached out to him. And he said, yeah, sure. And that's what you're about to hear. Stan uh, grew up in a fundamentalist Christian uh, home. He's a pastor. And uh, his faith and his belief um, system and all the things that he was uh, are not what he is now. Um, in the video that I watched on the CBS This Morning, he talks about being a part of a church that was doing gay conversion therapy and that kind of thing, um, and and where he is now versus where he was then is, I believe they call it a 180. So it was a really great conversation. Um, I'm honored that he took the time. He's super busy. He flies all over the world doing all sorts of uh, talks and uh, helping churches who want to be inclusive, helping them get their footing, that kind of thing. Uh, in fact, when uh, we sat and talked, he was leaving, I think, the very next day to go to Seattle <clears throat> to uh, work with a new church there. So anyway, really interesting guy, fascinating conversation. I think you're going to enjoy it. Um, usual stuff. If you are on iTunes, please rate and review Hey Human. It's super helpful. Um, I'm on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter under Susan Ruthism for Twitter and Hey Human Podcast for the other social medium, um, social medias and, uh, also Susan Ruthism for social medias too. So I'm kind of all over the place. Really at this point, you just Google my name. You're going to find me. Um, and I hope you do do that. Uh, what else? What else? What else? It's a new year. Uh, next week's episode is with Hannah Frazier. She's a living, breathing human mermaid, which is super cool. So uh, keep your ears open for that one next week. And thanks for listening. Uh, you can reach out to me, Susan, at HeyHumanPodcast.com. Don't forget on HeyHumanPodcast.com, I have links from every episode where I try and gather up as much information as I can to share with you uh, based on whatever it is I talk with uh, my guest about. So check that out. Oh, and then also if you shop Amazon, please go to HeyHumanPodcast.com. Check out the Amazon portal on that front page. And you can shop Amazon just like you normally do through that portal, and it helps support Hey Human. Okay, I think that's about it. Thank you for listening, and uh, as always, for spreading the word, and I appreciate it. Okay, here we go. Stan Mitchell, welcome to Hey Human. Thank you. Thanks for being on. Glad to be here. I learned about you because I was having dinner with a friend of mine, Steve, and he said, did you happen to watch... CBS the Sunday morning the other day, and I said, no. He said, you've got to go watch this, and it's really great. There's this guy on there. You need to talk to him, and he was referring to you, and I said, oh, all right, I'll, I'll check it out, and so I read the little blurb about it, and I thought, oh, 100% yes, and it was really great. You immediately answered and said yes, which I appreciate. 
Yeah, well, you uh, you reached out on Facebook and said you didn't think I would respond or something like that. Well, because you had reached your capacity of friends uh, and on my face- private page, yeah, yeah. And Facebook has an algorithm that unless you're friends with somebody, if you message them, they may never see it because it goes into that weird subfolder. Did you know about the little? I have no idea about the algorithms. Yeah, the- there's a little subfolder that if you're not friends with someone, it sticks it in that, ah. so you don't see it. So I thought, well, I'm just going to take a chance and post on the wall itself, which. You know, I feel is a little bit of an invasion, but I thought I'm going to go for it. Cause what are the, well, you know, here we are. Here we are, regardless. So thank you for that. Uh, are you are you from Nashville originally? So I grew up in Arkansas. Oh, okay. That's the urbane state to the west of here. Okay. Came here in '95 to be on staff at a large church down in South Nashville called Christ Church. Was there till 2002, and then left there and started Grace Point, which is the church that I now. Oversee in 2003. What what, uh, what was the domination of Christ Church? Is that so? Christ Church. I come from, and Christ Church also comes from a Pentecostal background. Very like I'm five generations deep in rural Arkansas Pentecostalism. My great great granddad was said to have even handled snakes. That's interesting. I know. I find that is, fascinating. It's fascinating. It's a it's a it's for sure a caricature of normal Pentecostalism. But in the early days of the 20th century. They did do that. So I, I was steeped in Pentecostalism. Uh, in Pentecostalism, it's not unusual for a young teenage kid, especially a male, to be called to preach. And so I started preaching when I was 16. And by the time I was 18, I was preaching revivals all over Arkansas and Oklahoma and Missouri um, as a kind of a boy wonder preacher. And it was something you wanted. It was something I wanted. I mean, it, it, you're all you're enlisted but I didn't mind it. Um, enlisted by the pressure of the family and the community sure. or enlisted yeah, the religious, by God? Okay. The religious sensibilities. Yeah, I would never blame that on God. The pathology of that. When you start preaching at 16 and by the time you're 20, you're preaching 250 nights a year, acting like a spiritual sage at 20. It's a uh, lot. That, yeah, that would like, I, I should have landed on one of the e-entertainment specials with where are the Partridge family children now? Me and Dan, Danny Bonaducci and... Mm. Gary mm-hmm. Coleman, God rest his soul. So there was a lot of pathology in becoming a spiritual leader at that age. But I did it, came to Nashville at 27 to be preaching pastor at um, the large church there. So I do love a good sermon. I do. But I like sermons that are more, I would say, bent on the hippie angle, where, <laughs> yeah, well, where Jesus actually loves everyone. Yeah, you would like mine now, because I've, that, I mean, that's the point. I've taken the journey from as uber right, conservative, theologically as you can, to, I suppose, as uber far left, liberal as you possibly can. So I've spanned the spectrum. So before we dig into all of that, I do want to ask about the handling of the snakes, have to ask is that somehow rooted in the idea of, of of overcoming the concept of the snake in eden is that why people handle snakes I no always wondered what that no was about. it's actually a reference in the gospel of mark um attributed to jesus that jesus was speaking to his followers just before his um resurrection before his crucifixion resurrection ascension when he would leave and he told them that after he left that they would actually speak with other tongues that if they handled snakes, they wouldn't harm them. And if they drank any deadly thing, uh, you know, a la Socrates, it wouldn't harm them. 
And so when the Pentecostal movement began in the early part of the 20th century, it was accompanied with glossolalia, which is tongue speaking. And a lot of its detractors pointed out that Mark not only spoke of tongue speaking, but he also spoke of drinking deadly things and taking up snakes. And so if they were going to be consistent, really the people of faith, they, you know, they thought they were or purported to be that they would also. So it was a challenge, actually, from the external world. Mm. Um, and we actually took that challenge up. And so many in the early days, it still exists today in rural Appalachian, even Alabama, Georgia, there are rural snake-handling Pentecostal churches. It's a fascinating. It is fascinating. Yeah. I agree with that. Um, wow. It's it's interesting to me about that, too, because Babylon, right, is considered to be such a, oh, no, all these people babbling in all these different languages and right. building the tower and all this stuff. That isn't that, for Jesus to say, like, hey, you're all going to talk in all these different tongues, languages, mm-hmm. and then over here, don't talk in all these different tongues. There should only be one thing. Right. Interesting it's, contrast, huh? It really is. But you find that throughout the Bible, which is why it's such an interesting read. Yeah, if you read the Bible as the spiritual travel diary of our ancestors, it's a wonderful book. Mm. If you read it as a constitutional end-all, be-all, the Word of God, like any book, that that demand overwhelms it. No literature can possibly be that, whether it's the Quran or the Bible or the Hebrew Scriptures. But it's a marvelous book if it's not... Um, people ask me if I take the Bible literally, and I always tell them I, I take it far too seriously to do that to it. Mm. It's not to be read that way. It's to be read poetically. And mm-hmm. as as I said, the diary of our ancestors, that we can like find like moral and ideological trajectory and slope in, but to take it as like a fixed point, a final propositional truth... Uh, that has created a lot of bad Christianity. Yeah. So, and I, I think in my interpretation, Jesus is a lot smarter than we give him credit for. You know, the metaphors, even God has these really beautiful, fascinating metaphors that, if you dig just below the surface, what seems, I, I use the example of um, like when Moses is saying. Why me? Why me? And the whole staff thing with the snake and all that. And he's like, I'm kind of a stinky sheep herder dude. Like, my brother's way cooler, way smarter. And God's like, no, no, it's you. And I love that moment because we are all underdogs, right? And if some big force of nature and all dominion is saying that we're worthy, that's such a beautiful moment of understanding, you know, of what you're capable of. And that's I the power that. of sacred literature. I mean, I was telling my daughter this morning, who's a musician, 13 years old. She I'm lives so in sorry Nashville. for you. I know. But <laughs> I was so telling sorry. her, I said, if you're really, we, she and I, uh, we went and saw Bohemian Rhapsody mm. the other night. And, it was, and she was just enthralled. And so our, our house and car is now filled with Queen music for awesome. the next foreseeable future. But I told her, I said, you know, if you're really interested in music, you need to find the top 100 albums of all time mm-hmm. whether it's john coltrane or mm-hmm. you know bb king or mm-hmm. acdc it doesn't matter just find the top 100 they're the top 100 for a reason they've shaped culture yeah read the classics and that's the power of sacred literature and sacred music it may not start out sacred but it becomes sacred over time because we recognize these endless irrepressible truths in yeah. them And to say that the Bible is the only sacred literature, I think what you described with the story of Moses, uh, I can do with the Iliad and the Odyssey. I Mm -hmm. can do with any sacred literature, any text that has survived 
the test of time. You can do it with Star Wars. Absolutely. So I'm not a bibliolater. I love the Bible, but I'm not a bibliolater. And I I always say I'm unashamedly Christian, but unapologetically interfaith. And the latter is because of the former. Um, I think Christ was the great progressive and a deep pluralist when we finally understand. But I think the message of all sacred literature and even Jesus is like a time-release capsule that releases its truths as humanity develops the consciousness to hear them. Mm. And I think time over time we grow ears and we develop eyes. And I mean, podcasts like yours, what, this is all about eye and ear development. It's just trying to expand not just the, you know, the dissemination of information, but it's actually trying to expand consciousness and capacity. And there is no better way to expand capacity than to be engaged with another person's story, mm-hmm. to just be stretched by the fact that somebody is living on this terra firma from a different angle, with a different experience, with an accumulation of life that's not mine. If we have half a heart, if not half a brain, that has to stretch us. So... Kudos. Yeah, I like this. Thank you. I, I, I listened to your episode with the gay porn star. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Thanks. I mean, just to just to hear this person who can be so easily caricatured in my mind, although I'm an LGBTQ, you know, devoted advocate, you, you get into the realm of porn star and all of that. Uh, and then to hear him. He's a beautiful so soul. So beautiful. And, yeah. and you know, to, to try to understand him. I, it, scripture says in Ecclesiastes, with all thy getting, get understanding. Hmm. Just lay down your judgments and just try to possibly see it from their side. Yeah, it, it bums me out that so many use religion to hide behind their own unwillingness. Sure. It's a shame. I so, think it's a vicious cycle. I do think there are people, because I was one of them, who did... I, I was given some really horrible ideas about God and life. And I did not immediately set out to use them to justify my own, you know, my own frailties or pathologies. As a child, those things, um, I, w- I was inculcated with those things to the point that they were in me at a molecular level. They become a part of me. And I deeply believe them. And they, they, they certainly shaped some bad behavior and some bad ideas but they came from a devoted place, a fear-based place of conviction. I thought that's who God was. So I, I do think there are a lot of people who rely on religion to excuse themselves from bad behavior. And then I think there's a lot of sincere people who live bad behavior because they were given some horrific ideas when the concrete of their life was still wet. Right. It was shaped, and then it set, and now we got to jackhammer it. Well, that's why I also think it's important to hear those people just as much I get I get into this conversation a lot because people think how do you why do you talk to people that are quote-unquote you know so horrific or are so hateful or so this or so that and first of all you can't know yourself until you know what you're not I really believe that and secondly just as you said they came to whatever their belief system is because they really believe it they're not necessarily, we look at some of these things as incredibly hateful and bizarre and, and twisting of what we think the word is or Jesus's thoughts are. But they're on the converse side, like, how can you be that mouthpiece, you know? So it is that moment of going, okay, 
where you came up from and your belief system, I'm going to listen to why. Let's get to the why of things. We know what it is. Let's get to the why it is. And if there, if there is a sense in our minds that their ideas are damaging, that their ideologies are harmful to themselves and other humans and, and the world, and we do hope they change, then how in the world would we expect them to possibly change if they weren't open? And how in the world would we expect them to possibly be open if we're engaging them with our own closeness? So we have to prime the pump of one another's openness by being open ourselves. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I often, I was talking to a, a, a cousin of mine, a trans cousin of mine, who desperately wants to change their parents' minds just yesterday. And we were talking and I asked them, what chance do you think they have of changing your mind? And it was just about 0%. Right. That's right. And why would it be different from, you know, from their side toward us? So there has to be this mutual openness. And if we can do anything, we may not change someone's mind, but we can at least, you know, humanize one another by giving one another the gift of openness to listen. I, will, I mean, Jesus that. said, having ears to hear, they don't hear. It's interesting. He didn't say having mouths to speak, they don't speak. We get the mouth speaking part really good, but it was the ears that was the problem. Mm -hmm. Truly hearing. And it's nearly impossible to not have your own judgment going into the conversation. Even me saying like, oh, they're hateful. They probably don't think they're hateful. They, they're just doing what they've been taught or what they really believe to be true for them selves and the world that they operate within yeah. that was one of the arguments that um when i for example stacy manning before we went on mic we were talking about that episode and some of the people that were not happy with me talking to her um they were first of all they said well you know she works for this woman who's horrific and you know listing all those things i said but i didn't talk to that woman i talked to stacy and stacy's entitled to her own thought process however she got there and wherever she may go with it in that moment that's the whole point is to listen to why and how she feels you know and and me going in there saying you're wrong you're wrong I'm no different than someone on the other side saying you're wrong you're wrong it's the same feeling it's the same I don't know it's, it's complicated conversation think, is even complicated you know I think the great sages um, who are also activist, ally, advocate kind of people. Mm -hmm. The great sages, you know, from Socrates to Jesus to, you know, modern times, Gandhi, Mandela, King, they always maintained some sense of respect and care for what we, we would refer to as their nemeses or their enemies. Mm -hmm. I don't think they ever really counted them as their enemies. Tichnot Han says there's no such thing as loving your enemy because in the moment you love them, they're no longer your enemy. Yeah. You may be their enemy in their mind, but they're not yours. Mm -hmm. And when you think, you know, I, I think about Socrates drinking the hemlock, and he had enough people there that were on his side of things that he wouldn't have had to have done that. He literally would not have had to have done that. And, and yet he assuaged the mob from intervening. And some of his last words were, he, he did not believe the people that were leading him to do this were inherently bad. He said they simply lacked a better idea. 
and he thought that even in his death there would maybe be a move toward the better idea. You think about Jesus um, in his martyred death. You know, Father, forgive them. Okay, on what grounds? They don't know what they're doing. Yeah, they don't know what they're doing. What do you mean they don't know? What the hell? Of course they know what they're doing. And yet Jesus was digging deeper and saying, no, on a deeper level, and, and, you know, King, when the guy pummeled him on stage, I can't remember if it was Montgomery or Selma, but it was one of his speeches. He was pummeled by this guy out of nowhere. King falls to the stage, and he's got a bloody mouth. And as he's on the ground, his uh, counterparts, some of the young men that were attending him, grabbed this guy, and they were just about to tear him limb to limb. And King, it, it's so moving to me, he was literally screaming out from on the floor, don't hurt him, don't hurt him. And he always referred to these nemeses of his as his sick white brothers and sisters. He always believed it was an illness more than an intent. And then Mandela, you know, the same way. Mm -hmm. And just on and on and on, the sages always maintain a love, not only for those they're advocating for, but to some degree they even see those who are perpetrating as victims of their own crime. And, you know, Covey's seven habits before you go to war with your enemy, find the place where they weep and watch them there. And you may not want to go to war with them. That's right. So to to dig under, you know, the wise man in Ecclesiastes said, with all thy getting, get understanding. Just try. And it's more than walking a mile in their shoes. I mean, what's a mile do? You'd have to have their feet. You'd have to have their entire life. Yeah, we talk about that all the time on the podcast is that... Um, I only can know you so far. I'll never truly know you. I can have empathy or understanding, but I won't ever know you because I come to you with all of my experience. You come to me with all of yours, and, you know, the two cannot ever commingle. It's just, it's an impossibility. So Some of my activist friends push back on me because I'm a, a bit of a mild-mannered peacemaker advocate. And honestly, I think a lot of young activists are almost addicted to outrage. I agree with you. I think people are addicted to outrage. And sometimes the addiction to outrage overwhelms even our love for for the other, even those we're advocating for. Right. Honestly. That's it, why I it, recommend it, everyone read the March books. John Lewis talking about the March across oh, the Oh, yes, 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 yes. So they're so good. Yeah. Just to, I, I don't know anybody. I don't know anybody, honestly, I'm, I'm thinking, I don't think I've ever known anyone who woke up in the morning or presently wakes up thinking, I want to be wrong, <laughs> stupid, mean, irreverent, bad, evil. I, I don't. The very idea of this premeditated evil, um, I'm believing in it less and less and less. Mm-hmm. I think we're all a part of the same genome and there are weak and frail pieces of us. Even our incarceration system here in the United States is built constitutionally on the foundation of a punitive God. I mean, you hurt us, we're going to hurt you. Then I think about the Scandinavian countries that are largely post-Christian, and yet I think they're finding the true ethic of what Jesus was saying, because they believe whoever does these dastardly things, even in society, they're a part of us. And to some degree, we're all complicit. And, And if not complicit, even there's there's a measure of responsibility to those weaker parts of us to see them repaired and to believe that they can be better. And that's such a better idea than you hurt us, 
we're going to hurt you back. We're going to return evil for evil. Right. And somehow that's going to repair us at a soul level. It's just not. Right. Educating our prisoners, restoring their rights when they've done their time so they can vote and they can drive. Because if we don't do that, then we're putting them back into a society where they, they won't be able to cope. If they can't even drive to a job, how are they supposed to get their life back on track? And if you, if a person, the royal you, believes that in, in within the concept of sin, for example, if, for, if Jesus died on the cross because, because of original sin, if that's your belief system, and if we are all born with this sin that we're trying to make up for as we live our life, well, then you should certainly look at somebody who's become imprisoned for committing a crime, i.e. sin, and then want them to make amend, might want be better. them to be better. But again, you know, a religion, so much of Christianity is based on a premise that two people ate a fruit thousands of years ago that they were talked into by a snake. And every human born since then is separate from God and deserving of eternal punishment. Mm. I mean, that's a horrific presumption. I don't. Now, we call the good news the capacity of humans to be reunited with God. But what if we were never separated? What if the great news is that every human being is born a beloved child of God and couldn't possibly be separated? That's such a better premise. And I think it's a premise that can even be born out of Scripture um, if Scripture is read properly. But the whole idea of original sin and people inherently bad, no wonder we have a punitive system of treatment of people who've made mistakes. No wonder we're harsh to one another. I think about the concept of, of sin, and I think that, you know, what if, let's take that word out and put in the word self-loathing, because yeah. that's really, we're trying to find a place of non-self-loathing. That's our journey in this life. What is non-self-loathing? Uh, lo loathing is self-loving. Sure. And what is love, if not the universe? I think if, if Jesus gives us anything religiously, you know, for the first 2,000 years, years of Christianity, we focus so much on Christology and on the Trinitarian idea of God coming to earth in human form. I think Jesus' real descent here was to show us who we are. Uh, I... I think he is the archetype. He's inherently the beloved child of God, and so are we. Mm -hmm. And then when he's at, at his baptism, he hears that voice, you are my beloved son. Before ministry, before one miracle, walked on water, did anything, inherently you are my beloved son in you, not by you. In you, I'm well pleased. The temple of God is within. Inherent belovedness. Yeah. And then he's driven immediately wet with the waters of his baptism into the wilderness. And the first voice he heard was, if you are the son of God, turn that stone into bread. Pull a rabbit out of a hat. Perform. Justify your belovedness by performance. That's not, so we talk about Jesus' temptation to sin. That wasn't a temptation to sin. It was a temptation to shame and to identity loss. The the voice of the tempter was saying, if you're really going to claim to be the son of God, you can't possibly claim that unless you do these great things, unless you prove it by casting yourself down from the temple. Jesus resisted shame. And I think the first 2,000 years of Christianity, we have hammered people over this issue of sin. I think the real human condition, the real illness is shame. And people like Brene Brown through mediums of social work and sociology and psychology are picking up on those things. And She's awesome. I, I'm writing a book right now that is the Christian 
version of what she's saying because it's all through our book. Shame is the real issue. And when shame consumes us, we often end up doing bad behavior. But the bad behavior, the bad behavior is just a result of our own self-loathing. And I think our, our scripture even is really clear on that. Yeah, I think maybe one of the hardest things a human being can do is look at themselves in the mirror and say, I love you. Mm. We throw the word love around, no. but... I mean, our whole our whole story, Jesus said, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, how do I love my neighbor? As I love myself. Well, how do I love myself? Mm, there it is. And I, I think we do love our neighbor as we love ourselves, often very poorly. That's right. And self-love is, is something that has not been taught classically by Christianity. Some of the Eastern religions are way ahead of us mm. on that. But I think we're, I think we're catching up. Um, but I think it's an incredibly important idea. I don't think we possibly have the capacity to love others well until we learn that in ourselves. So was the 16-year-old you, did you have self-love? or were It's you? total self-loathing. I learned self-loathing by the time I was five years old. I was spastic colon, biting my fingernails to the quick, performing, trying desperately to find any anesthetic I could to kind of assuage the feelings of... I, I mean, I was taught in the religion that I grew up in, I was taught God was, God was, and God was the most important thing. And pretty quickly, I, I learned that God had a pretty low opinion of me and all humanity. And we were pretty bad. And I swallowed that hook, line, and sinker. My brother, some of this comes down to human psychology because personality. My brother was two years older, a wonderful person, and I was like a black wool sweater for Lent. And he was like Teflon. He just never bought that. He's lived the most marvelous, marvelous, beautiful, reverently agnostic life, leaning into the mystery. But man, I was the kid that just bought it, hook, line, and sinker. Are you the youngest child? I was the middle. Um, there, there you go. <laughs> yeah. So I bore the burden of all that, but yeah, self-loathing, self-loathing, a low self-opinion was the devast the ruin of my early life, and so to being a superstar uh, evangelical, yeah. did that help of at all? Of course. I mean, we all look for anesthetic for the pain, and some people. It, it just depends on what trees grow in your backyard, which fruit you're going to pick. Mm. Some people you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, the proverbial ones. I picked performance because mm -hmm. it was the one that was accessible. And religion is definitely a drug. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, Marx, wasn't, Marx was right. Um, yeah, I was, I was a kid that, you know, I, I, made as, I, I, made good, I made as good a grades as I could, and I ran as fast as I could, and I threw the ball as far as I could, and I had enough precociousness and talent that it gave me a platform to receive what really was the drug, and that was affirmation. Mm -hmm. So my supplier was people. Um, my, you know, my currency was performance, and the drug itself was affirmation. I felt so horrible about myself that if extrinsically someone would say you're really good, I never bought that. It never. It was like an opiate for a really pained person. It wouldn't give me a high. It would just bring me back to normalcy. If there is a pain sponge, that opiate's not going to make you high. But if you take the opioids, as m so many are now doing, when you're in a normal place, it's going to give you a rush. Well, I never got a rush from the opiate of affirmation because I was already so pained and low. It would just relieve me to a place of almost neutrality where I could kind of breathe. 
And so, you know, just make good grades, run the football, you know, into the end zone, hit a home run. But then at 16, I parlayed that into another stage, and that was a religious stage. And that becomes doubly insidious because now my supplier is a, is a religious body, a church. And now my drug of choice is being given to me from people in churches, and my performance is ministry to them. And the insidious nature of that is how hidden that can be as a pathology. It's and not this, easy to the see. The whole idea of the pastor or uh, or the priest or, or whatever religious figure uh, is interesting also because it does, that person becomes the golden calf. Yeah. And I think it's very tricky to, to tell someone that the only way to feel their higher power is through this other person. Yeah, that's, that's just that's lining you up for oh, just a, a lot of bad things. Well, well that, I mean, early on when, when, religious, when religions were developing, our first sense of the other, the invisible, was that our ancestors had moved on and were populating this invisible world and still had the ability to interact and influence things. And eventually those ancestors, those spirits on the other sides, kind of developed into a pantheon of godlike beings and ultimately that evolved into the idea of a creator god or gods but one thing that was common in, in those earliest days of you know theistic development was we did think the gods were angry and they were capricious and whimsical and we never knew they're a little you know, bratty they were there yeah. was no i mean if judaism if the abrahamic religions have any innovation it's that they suggested the morality of god they admitted god's angry but they said justifiably so because we've done wrong we've broken god's law so that was a good advancement to at least say god's not totally capricious um even now our insurance policies you were yes. once in the you know they 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 still have this vestige of a day gone by they call them acts of god yes and i i talked about this with my dad who i love having these kind of conversations with him um he's a scientist and he would say he's an atheist though i would argue that he's agnostic because he is a scientist and uh but anyway uh i said you know this whole thing with the act of god i said it seems to me that if your insurance company won't give you a check because of an act of God that if you are indeed an atheist, you can argue that the existence of God in court and at least get to a point <laughs> where the check comes. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, the convenient theology for sure. Yeah. Where, so as you're, you're trucking along uh, within that, you're, as you said, a rock star in this. Uh, I didn't say rock star. You said rock I star. I did. Oh. That would be a little odd for me to what say. What did you say? You, well, you said you were a superstar. You said you were a superstar. Did I? I apologize. Yeah. No, I, I mean, that you get, I, I never received that kind of a claim. But in that, in a small world, I was a big sure, duck on, big, in a little pond. And it was yeah. it was gratifying. Yeah. And, and all the, you know, all the acclaim is and i would like in uh, a, a big pa a pastor who is uh who can get people in that fever pitch to a rock star that's exactly what rock stars do regardless if there's a million people following you or 20. oh i mean when i was 27 28 i was preaching every weekend to a congregation of about three to four thousand people that's i mean that's star. heady stuff for a, <laughs> when you're 27 28 and you have this incredible hollow spot in your soul yeah and you're desperately, and there was no, du there was, it wasn't duplicitous. It wasn't hypocritical. I was always a loving kid who cared about people. 
none of the stuff was born out of you know insincerity it was all born out of deep insincerity i was trying my best to convince myself i mean the high octane fuel that charged my engine was my own angst and my own sense of desperately wanting to believe that god could possibly love me that i could have any worth and but in you did my, believe truly in god i did believe in god i just believed horrible things about god and um that that's the ultimate reform as I begin to lose those horrific ideas. Did you start to get messages that at that age or did it come later? Did you start to think, wait a minute, I, oh, might, geez. I might be a little off here. Yeah, I did not have any sense of question or any uncertainty until I was 20. Uh, the the normal weaning individuation differentiation that is you know normal psychology for an pre adolescent adolescent teenage child I did not have and fundamentalist religions don't espouse that kind of individuation they because it's dangerous which is incredibly dangerous um, it's it's terribly unhealthy psychology to a lot to tell a child at seven eight years old okay here here are the answers to life's most important questions memorize them you've never even heard these questions had these questions but here are answers that you didn't come to but they are what we call orthodoxy or the fundamentals of our faith the cardinal truths of our faith and we're going to pass those on to you like a baton and don't ever question them and if you ever do question them that's because there's this entity called satan who's tempting you to do that and you're just confused and he's trying to lure you and if you're lured by that so i mean it's it's a horrible Mindfuck, honestly. Um, excuse the no, French, but that's barely. true. I, it's, and I mean that in the strictest, most religious sense. It is a horrible thing to do to children, to teach yeah. them to individu individuate on every matter except this incredibly important matter of religio-spiritual things. Yeah, it's also in direct opposition to the concept of free will. Absolutely. I mean, even the scripture, Christians are always quoting Proverbs, train up a child in the way they should go. I mean, listen to that. That's adverbial. That's that's a, a verb process. It's not train up a child in the place they should be. Train up a child in the ideas they should believe. It's train up a child in the way they should go. I mean, that's that's incredibly active. I'm not training my children to be Christians. I'm training them in, in the way to be going. And if they come to Christianity on their own, and through their own processes, more power to them. I would feel that God, being you know a jealous and rather egotistical creature, would actually prefer it if the person who believes in him or it or her or whatever you believe would actually step away from the belief for a second and then come back, because that's that's real. Well, it's it's called. I mean, that process has been described in many ways. Paul Ricoeur, the great uh, French philosopher, talked about we all move essentially through three phases. And, of course, Piaget and Erickson and, and all the others you know, elaborated on this. But I do like this three-stage process of pre-critical thought, critical thought, and then post-critical thought. He also called it first naivete, sophistication, and second naivete. And I, I think... In every, you know, every child, the weaning process is they take those things that they've naively inherited. And by naivete, I mean they had no, they had no filters. They are subject to authority figures and they learn what thumbs are and chairs are and the difference between orange and purple through authority figures. And that's all fine. 
As long as those authority figures then give that child the ability to begin to develop their own question, not just look for different answers to the questions they were given, but develop their own questions. That is a healthy individuating process, but fundamentalist religions, fear-based religions, they believe in the construction phase. phase. They don't believe in the deconstruction phase. And, and often they say, well, we do believe in the deconstruction phase. Yes, as long as the person reconstructs what was originally constructed. What if the person reconstructs an entirely different zeitgeist or worldview? Right. Well, then the alarms go off and these people are subject to the fear of eternal punishment. That, that stuff, I mean, humanity is evolving beyond that. We're seeing through the manipulation of that. But I'm still not ending up where Hawkins and Hitchens are. I still think there's something deeply meaningful beyond the organic, the corporeal, the three-dimension, a foot in the universe. But atheism is their religion. Yeah, and and you know what? More power to That's them. That's what I always say, too. It's like the good news, no pun intended, is that it doesn't matter what somebody else believes. I have my belief system, and that's fine. I am unto myself a world and a universe. And it wasn't until I was about 12 or 13 that I finally had grown into my belief system, which is ever-evolving and changing, of sure. course. And I say, as one who was raised within a religious faith, Christianity was my mother tongue. Mm -hmm. That was my native language. Um, I deconstructed Christianity from the far, far right conservative uh, you know, position I grew up in, I, re I deconstructed Christianity until I, I came to its border. I mean, my toes hung over the edge of the Big Sur, and I knew I was at the edge of this continent. And, and I, I decided that at the fringes, in the most robust and broad-minded view of Christianity, I could still allow it to be my lingua franca, the, the primary language that I dream in, make love in, cuss in, it, it's my knee-jerk. Because when you come to that, that border, whether you grew up a humanist, an atheist, a, a, a Buddhist, a Christian, when you come to that deconstructed border of your faith and you're, you're considering it in its full, you know, its, its fullness, but also in relation to the rest of the continents of the ideological world, I think you have a question to ask, and that is, does this language, does this modality of spirituality, does it have more baggage for me or equity? And for those who say, nah, it's got more baggage for me, I get why they jettison and then move on to something else. For me, and this may have to do with my personality, I'm a nostalgic traditionalist, sentimentalist by nature. I was able to sort through the baggage and still find some real equity and capital in a very second naivete form. It's, it's almost like, you know, my daughter, when she finally realized l later than most that there was no literal Santa Claus in North Pole. I mean, her first emotion was sadness and then anger. She felt duped. And then I, I remember she was in fifth grade, sixth grade even, there was a sense of embarrassment. That mm. how many people knew this and then her embarrassment was replaced with this kind of disdain for those who still held that idea. And she would really be condescending to those people who still believed in literal Santa Claus. Ultimately, I told her, I said, sis, I, 
I believe in Santa Claus more than I ever have. The idea of it. The, that's the second naivete. embodiment. Yeah, the myth- mythology. Jesus didn't say the facts will set you free. He said the truth will. And the Santa Claus story is actually in the end, like all mythology, a projection of our own divinity. When we can't bear our own greatness, we have to project that onto these mythological figures that we literalize because we want there to be heroes. It's easier to make them bronze statues and worship them than it is to be them ourselves. Mm. And so eventually I look at Santa Claus and realize, that's me. These mythological figures, we have, we have projected our own divinity onto these Jesus figures because we couldn't bear our Christness. What if we can step into? And all the great religious figures, that's their deal. Jesus came and left. And at the last moment before he ascended into the heavens, the Bible says they were worshiping him there. And he floated away. He's like, stop it. And the angels come to them and say, why are you standing here gazing? They're like, we're not gazing. We're worshiping. They're like, no, you're gazing at a hole in the sky. Go become Christ. Go live into your own divinity. That's what the great religious figures do. They don't come to be venerated. They come to release us to be the fullness of God that we can be. Right. And also a lot of our spiritual leaders have been very flawed. I just want to check some. Is that? Okay, good. Um, you know, they're very flawed. They, The idea of seeking to be perfect in order to win God's approval, it's insane. <laughs> you don't have to win. My kids never have to win my approval. They're inherently approved. And I want the best for them. And do they make mistakes? Sure. I don't so punish do you, them. right? We all yeah, do. Yeah, we all do. Join the club. Welcome to the human family. Yeah. I remember after one of my big foibles some 20 years ago, I was sitting with a friend of mine, and I was talking how I was talking about how I couldn't believe this had happened to me. I couldn't believe I had done this. And I was just prattling on in this kind of narcissistic um, humility really beating myself up and talking about how I just go. And my friend finally looked at me and said, you arrogant prick. <laughs> and and he's a minister, brilliant guy. And I, I was stunned. Was, I felt like a boxer. I fell back on the ring, ring ropes, almost punch drunk, because I'm trying to be humble and pitiful. And he calls me an arrogant prick. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he said, you know what? Your whole life you've been taking care of people who screw up. You promote this idea of a loving God and compassion. He said, hell, I bet if I were sitting in your your seat right now, you'd be the first one there saying, hey, get your head up. You're just human. He said, you're, you believe. He said, listen to what you're saying. You believe that this can happen to anybody else, but you can't believe this would happen to you. Mm-hmm. And then he softened and he looked at me and he said, welcome to the human family, Reverend. Mm-hmm. And that was a threshold I didn't want to cross. I just, and it, it wasn't ego as much as it was, I just didn't feel like I could live there. I had been taught such horrific ideas about God that perfection was demanded. And if perfection couldn't be attained, then you at least feign it. You at least try to convince yourself of it for some anesthetic before you have to burn forever. It's really awful. Even when we say just human or only human, there's shame all around that, oh, yeah. isn't it? Like there's something like bad. Inherently wrong with being human. Uh, yeah. Hey, human is great theology, by the way. Thank you. Where, uh, what was one of the first little whispers into your brain pan that said, all is 
not what it seems, sir. Oh, that's great. I uh, the first thought I had. I, I lived next door to a United Methodist minister, and his wife one day knew that I was a young minister, and she was trying to, you know, be nice to her neighbor, and she brought me this book that she had read. It was 1985. I was 17 years old, and the book was called On the Anvil, and it was by a Church of Christ author named Max Licato. Well, in our denomination, young ministers were not supposed to read what was called external literature. That means we could only, I mean, think about this. Yikes! Everybody stand on one foot, hop up and down and repeat after me. We are not a cult. It's like patriotism you know? and the Pledge of Allegiance. Sure. Yeah. And and so she, she brought me this book, and I know as a young minister I'm not supposed to read this because it's external literature. It's propaganda. Older ministers could read literature outside of our faith tradition because they were they were more stable and you know could metabolize it. But I held on to that book. I don't know. I, I held on to that book. I, I remember I put it under my bed. It was the closest I ever got to like a Playboy. That was uh, that's amazing. I, I literally, our oh we God. were so puritanical, and I was so a asexual. Like I, Johnny Carson used to quip that when he was sixteen, he was so innocent he would go out behind the barn and do nothing. That was me. I I literally, but I put this book under my bed, and it it was just this scandal beneath my bed, and finally. One day, I pulled the book out, and I read it, and I was scandalized. I was scandalized by the fact that someone outside of our faith tradition could write so movingly about Jesus. And I just, I just couldn't imagine it. And, you know, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. said, The mind, once exposed to a better idea, can never shrink to its original size. And just knowing that somebody outside my faith tradition could write that movingly it 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 i don't know it just it was like a pinhole of light opened and then you start thinking about you know these other people are they really going to hell i mean there was no question there was a hell but then we we thought billy graham was going to hell and mother teresa was going to hell because those ideas were so caricatured and ridiculous and extreme it was honestly fortuitous to me that I was born that extremely conservative because it allowed me to break and say, this makes absolutely no sense. And from that moment at 20, those first thoughts, I began tunneling my way upstream. I, I, I guess I could best say I bibliographied my way upstream. I realized with religious writers, especially from fear-based religions like Christianity, that if you really want to know what a writer thinks, don't read what they write, read who they read. And I got to noticing all of these Christian authors, their bibliographies were filled with people more liberal than they were or progressive than they were. And somehow I put two and two together and said, they don't believe this shit they're talking because I know who they're reading. Mm -hmm. And every bibliography led me to a little, a little further up the stream. And seven or eight generations of that finally landed me in a very pluralistic, wide-hearted view of God. But you were still up there on the pulpit between 20 and 27. So as you were growing... I was up there in the pulpit from 20 to 34 in an evangelical setting. Were you starting to, to infiltrate these thoughts, these new ideas into I your was, sermons? I was, I, was putting the, I was putting them in there 
encode because mm. those settings are incredibly, um, you know, demanding of uniformity. But I, I was putting them in there in code, maybe subconsciously, because I, I was thinking better thoughts about God, and I wanted to share those thoughts because I was still trying to convince myself of them. The old thoughts, the old thoughts were still embedded in me. I'm like at amygdala, lizard brain place. Honestly, that uh, that's where we carry so much trauma. It gets, it, it's not in the frontal cortex. It's not in that secondary level. It's it's down in the fear, fright, flight, freeze, fuck part of us, and that's Here's where the title I held for it. This episode, no. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, you know, it's like the years of our life aren't calendar pages that you rip off and throw away. They're more like the concentric rings of a tree. They're still in there. Yeah, you're an onion, absolutely. When I turned yeah. fifty this year, I didn't cease being forty-nine. Now I'm fifty. I'm forty-nine. I'm forty-eight. The concentric rings of the tree are the xylem. Life still flows through those previous years. And I um I was, you know, I was filled with all of those years. The outer the outer ring though was always acquiring new and better information. And I think the challenge for me in those years was the outer rings were acquiring uh, acquiring better information that was very intellectually healing and rationally thoughtful. But I wasn't connected to the spiritual work or the therapeutic work that would actually heal the five-year-old and the eight-year-old and the 11-year-old that was still traumatized by the idea that I might could, like, I mean, how traumatizing is it to really believe that you might could burn forever, be tortured forever? I mean, to impose that upon children's minds Mm -hmm. as one who bought that hook, line, and sinker and was traumatized by it, that's psychological terrorism. And I don't care what religion it hides behind. That is psychological terrorism at its worst. It's child abuse. It's as child as abuse. I'm concerned, but I mean, we say the worst person in the world is a religious terrorist who says, because you don't believe what I believe, you're an infidel and you deserve to die. We say that's terrible and awful. And then we have an entire religion based upon the idea of a God who's going to do that to the majority of humanity based on the whimsy of and geography of where they were born. I mean, my God, if that's who God is, that's all of our worst nightmare, and we might as well just quit now. But it's not who God was. So back to your question, I was reforming intellectually, but I was not healing emotionally. And I, it finally led to a breakdown, and I got out of ministry completely. Well, what would happen when, as you were going through this, as you were, as you were getting there, and people, I assume, come to you and say, "Hey, you know, can we have a, a little chat one on one?" And when you were in those kind of confidences, did you? Oh yeah, I I had my safe places where I divulged. Uh, we had our closed groups that were scandalously um, rebellious to you know. I've been kicked out dogma. of a lot of Sunday school. But I was also very careful. I bet you have. I, I was very careful. I was a, I was a more of a codependent type that wanted everybody to like me and wanted everybody to get along. And and you know, I, it was my livelihood. It was the way I made my living as well. There was that vocational piece. It wasn't just one thing. It was a lot of things that held me there. But when I got totally, when I left the church and and got out of ministry. I still had like this spiritual itch inside of me, and I knew that fundamentalism, that Christianity as I knew it, was gone for me. That I there was no way I could ever. I 
I had lost faith in any of that, and it deserved me to lose faith in it. But I still had this spiritual itch. I still felt that there was something afoot. Um, that's like when you said your dad's not, you tease that he's not an atheist. I don't think there are pure atheist or pure theist. That level of certainty, I kind of put on a conviction scale at zero and 100. Nobody, we're talking about the invisible world. I don't care how many anecdotal evidences there are. There's no proof about an invisible God. I don't know there's a God. I don't know there's not a God. That's zero and 100. We are all, to some degree, either irreverently or reverently agnostic. Agnostic is not atheist light, and it's not theist weak. Agnostic is simply this wonderful admission of mystery that I don't know. Exactly. And so I slide on this continuum between 1 and 99, mm -hmm. and there are moments that, as Frederick Buechner said, I reach into the dark for the grip of a divine hand, and I've never felt that hand, but every now and then I get the brushing of fingertips, and it slides me down to the 80s and 90s, and then, you know, some four-year-old child of a friend of mine, after horror, dies of leukemia, and you know, you slide back down into the teens and, and single digits. But we all live, we should just all live curiously and courageously and lovingly and gratefully and honestly on that 1 to 99 continuum of agnosticism. Uh, I'm a reverent Christian agnostic. Did you ever reach a point where you couldn't feel something bigger than yourself? Where you, where there was an absence completely? Where you hit zero? No, I didn't, and I don't know. But it's it's hard, you know, on that continuum between zero and 100. It's like a friend of mine, A.J. Levine, who's a, a wonderful um, New Testament scholar, teaches at Vanderbilt's Divinity School and teaches in the College of Vanderbilt. A.J. is Jewish. She's not... I Technically a Christian, yeah, <laughs> not hard. But she's a she's a New Testament Jesus scholar, and Vanderbilt's smart enough to have her there. And she's she teaches the kids that are coming in there for Christian ministry their first introduction to the New Testament. Anyway, she's just this really incredible human. She's got a great brain. Well, the of Jews course, did but get Jesus first. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. And he, yeah, he is Jewish, and she reminds us of that. But AJ was being. Um, she brought a friend of hers who uh, is a New Testament scholar to class one day, and I was there. And this particular New Testament scholar is now bereft of any faith at all, bereft of Christianity. And he was talking to A.J. in the class, and he was essentially saying in a kind way that people like A.J. who still have religious faith and a sense of the other, uh, of the numinous, you know, the, un the, the ground of all being, and all of us young Christian ministers there, he said, you know, I think... I think this liberal Christianity you guys are coming up with is just your sentimental incapacity to let go. And so you're trying to take what was literal and fabricate some kind of good feeling mythology that lets you hang on to those, lets you hang on to Santa Claus, essentially. So he was describing second naivete and kind of poo-pooing it. AJ said something I'll never forget. She said, you know, I seldom feel any sense of knowing any sense of like deep certainty that there is the other, that life has meaning, that there's perpetuity beyond the grave. I, I seldom anymore have a sense of knowing. She said, but in the absence of knowing, I believe. 
And she said, I don't know that it's going to rain tomorrow, but I believe. And in the statement of belief, there's an admission that that's not 100%. There's an 80% chance of rain, a 60%. I believe. She said, and there are times that life assaults me and my mind and my heart to where even belief drains out the bottom of my feet. And she said, but in the absence of belief, I still hope. I hope for a better world. I hope that this is more than just organic. And she said, sometime life gets so hard that I even lose hope. Mm. But after I've lost hope, she said, I still dream. And I have never quit dreaming this dream. And in the end, I think this dream is the only dream worth dreaming. And I, I, I don't think I've ever lost the dream. I do get down in single digits sometime. But, again, Beekner said, perhaps the miracle of it all is not that I, who might so often have given up, have not given up, but perhaps the miracle is that I am not given up on. And while I've neither had the malevolent or beatific vision of Milton's paradise lost, from time to time I continue to hear whispers from the wings of the stage. And... That's beautiful. That's always been my sense. I think there's something very meaningful here. And my atheist friends don't, it doesn't bother me at all. I, I have no sense or fear that the afterlife is going to be worse for, for them. My brother, who's, you know, who left Christianity years ago, when I was becoming a young preacher, he went the other direction. A few years ago, he was here. He came over to watch a, the Titans play the Steelers because he and I are Steelers fans. And he came over and, we were walking, and he's a very understated person. I'm the verbose guy, and he's understated. He just, out of the blue, he said, Bub, you ever worry about me? And I said, <laughs> I said, what do you mean? And he said, you, you think about my afterlife and all that. I know. And I said, Steve, you know I'm, I, I don't think like that anymore. And he said, I know. I just wonder. He said, I don't want you worrying about me. And I and what came to me, I said, you know, honestly, if if there is some kind of a throne one day and Jesus is the guy that sits on the throne, I think he'll shake your hand. Because the Christianity you left was such a horrible representation. I think he'll shake your hand and I think your agnostic, atheistic leanings were actually a defense of who Jesus is more than a rejection. And he said he liked that. So so you were involved in the type of religion that was very anti-gay. Oh sure. So yeah. that, in fact the the episode that you were on on the on the ABC or CBS CBS, CBS. Yeah. CBS Sorry, Sunday CBS. morning. Yeah, that uh they were, the topic was conversion therapy. Right. Which is still put into practice. Sure. Which is to me horrific. Again, it seems quite abusive and such. But it was something that was part of your religion. And then, and you know, please talk about that if you are comfortable, but if not, then oh, yeah. don't. But, um, and then you were like, this is not cool. Uh, where, how did you cross that? Well, you know, a lot of, a lot of people, it, it can go two directions. A lot of people of faith know people who are LGBTQ. And just the knowledge of that person is so dissonant with their received dogma that it forces them back to their dogma saying, God, this can't be right. Because they have this incarnational experience. Um, I kind of came the other direction. I wasn't 
you know, my deconstruction was happening late 80s through the 90s, even when I was pastoring the large church here in, in town, I, I was deconstructing. I wasn't thinking about homosexuality or human sexuality, humanity. I was thinking, I was fixated on God. So the reality is, as my ideas of God begin to shift and my ideas of who Jesus was and the role of religion, and as those things begin to shift, as my idea of what the Bible was begin to shift, those lenses as I begin to wear those lenses, everything began to look differently. And one of the first things that really began to look differently for me was the whole idea of the afterlife and who's in and who's out. All of that stuff, you know, totally changed for me. And that's not a very far, that's not far removed from, you know, what the church had done to marginalized groups of people, the diminishment of groups of people like the LGBTQ. And as I began to just experience these people they were members of our church they were closeted members of our church and i began to really get behind the scenes and care enough to dig in and exp and, and to see what they were going through and you know just to witness the damage that had been done to their psyche to their soul to their entire life to have known you know i always knew as a child that it was you know it was the things that i did that made god unhappy but at an even deeper level, they didn't even do these things. It was who they were. It was like being born a woman and that was displeasing to God. Being born, you know, black and that's displeasing to God. It was inherently who they were. So did the church actively go, oh, that person's clearly gay or lesbian, send them off to be, you know? No, no, the church did not do that. Uh, the, church, the church was pretty much ignorant to homosexuality until probably the 60s, 70s, when society began to press the issue. It was just very ignorant. Um, and then the 80s, of course, brought it in full force with the AIDS crisis. And at, at that point, the church's initial reaction was, you know, these people are an abomination and they're they're enduring the wrath of God. Yeah, God's, yeah. And... God's wrath, yeah. But the problem with that is uh, the AIDS crisis created a lot of really hurting sick people and that began to play on the pangs of conscience of many church people and they begin to take these people in and begin to minister to them really you know fancying ourselves in the beginning overly magnanimous that we're not only caring for sick people but sinful sick people but up close i mean this is what always happens if people have half a brain and half a heart a quarter of a heart when, when doctrinal issues, abstract black letters on a white page, eventually flesh them out, flesh themselves out incarnationally in the lives of people, and those people aren't distant people, but they begin to be your cousins and your aunts and your sons and your daughters and your spouses. All of a sudden, what begins to happen is we're not playing with monopoly money and plastic chips. We're playing with everything we've got in the world laid on the table. And the arguments begin to move from the esoteric to the more credible because this is a human being that we're talking about. This is my son I'm talking about. And that eventually wore on the church. And by the time I was here in Nashville, our, our church was not that harsh, strident voice calling these people abominations. It was kind of in that in-between phase of, gosh, these are people just like us and they have their sin just like we have our sin. And so there was a bit fairer treatment um, of them, but it was still 
kind of like a Jim Crow South on the other side of slavery. It was a three-fifths compromise. They still were, they weren't getting beaten quite as badly, but they were drinking from separate water fountains, which in the end, you know, a separate but equal water fountain, that water may hydrate someone just fresh from the slave fields, but eventually it starts getting bitter. And there's only so long that you can eat the crumbs that fall from the table and those satisfy you. There's a point where you literally would just rather die of thirst than drink from that water fountain. Mm. And that's the world that I was a young minister in, where the church was in this ambiguous, pained place where we, we knew in our minds that this was sin, but we also knew we had sin, and we didn't know exactly what to do with these people. So the church entered into where the church is still kind of at these days, this kind of insipid, don't ask, don't tell, where we know, but we don't act like we know. And don't push, you know, all of that. But when people would finally come to me and say, hey, I, this is a part of my life, we would always help them come to the conclusion that it was unwanted same-sex attraction. And we would help them. Of course they didn't want it. I mean, they lived in a religious world where they were taught that they were less than and going to hell for it. Who would want that? And at the moment, you know, we would cajole them or manipulate into them this place of admitting it was an unwanted same-sex attraction. Then things like reparative therapy would be options. And if it wasn't, if it wasn't explicit reparative conversion therapy, because that is a modality, we were doing small r, small c reparative and conversion therapy. With fear. It, yeah, with fear. Just setting it. Just listen to what we were saying. Yeah. Sit in my office. Look at the way I looked at you. You know, I'm telling you, you, you've got to change in order to please God. That's that underneath reparative therapy or reparative religion is the idea these people need repaired. And they didn't need repaired. How did the church on one hand say God makes no mistakes and then in the face of a human being who's saying Oh, I have this thing that you're now calling a mistake. The was church that has where the all devil pops of, in? Or? Of course, the devil, original sin, yeah. all of those things. The church has answers for all of that. It's a tight ideological system. And I read on on the on the little reader board going by during your interview, it said that something upwards of 700,000 yeah. conversion therapies that are taking place on a yearly basis. That seems yeah. like... Oh, that's a shit ton. That's a lot of pain. That's a lot of people feeling that they are unworthy. The reality is... And probably, I can't even imagine how many suicides oh come my out God. of that. See, that's, it, it's, at this point, I'm, I'm having less and less compassion for religious bodies and religious leaders who are dragging their feet on this. I think there's a point where you, you don't get to do despicable, harmful things to people and hide behind religious freedom. Amen. I mean, you don't get to fly planes in the World Trade Center to say this is the way we interpret the Quran. I mean, good Muslim people are aghast at that. That is not the way the Quran is supposed to be treated. I have so many robust, moderate, liberal Muslim friends who share a very similar faith to me as progressive Muslims to my progressive Christianity. I have far more in common with a progressive Jew or a progressive humanist or a progressive Buddhist than I do a conservative Christian. So the progressive nomenclature is as important as the Christian. Christianity is the religion that I take, its narrative, its lexicon of terms, its set of symbols, 
It's one that I know well. It's what I was born in. And I play out a progressive humanity and spirituality through that language. People do that through Judaism. People do that through Buddhism. People do that through Hinduism. And in all those religions, they also can play out a dastardly form, fear-based form of that. So, yeah, I mean, the damage done to these people, we know right now that an LGBTQ child, an LGBTQ adolescent, in a religious home that rejects them fundamentally on the grounds of their sexuality, doesn't even have to literally put them out of the house, but rejects them and, and continually tells them that they are lost and they're displeasing to God and all of that stuff. That child who lives in a rejecting home is over eight times as likely to attempt suicide, not as a cisgender heterosexual kid, but as another LGBT kid raised in an affirming home. Eight times more likely. Across the board, LGBTQ kids are attempting suicide more than four times, four times more often, in excess of four times more often than cisgender straight kids. And even more stunning than that, or as equally stunning, is their suicide attempts are six times as effective. They are six times as likely to land them in the hospital or in the morgue. So when they do it, they really do it. Just on those numbers alone, that's a moral crisis. That is a mental health crisis. And I I don't care what your biblical interpretation is. If you're being confronted with empirical evidence that children, their health and safety is jeopardized to this degree in that condition, then that ought to at least cause you to review the matter Mm -hmm. and to go back. And church history, Christian history, is a long history of the church being confronted by scientific, empirical, anecdotal evidence from the lives of humanity um, being confronted by that and stubbornly resisting it and even burning at the stake the people who posit those things. Only 300 years later, to do a big mea culpa and and create a bronze statue for the very one they burned at the stake and called him a hero. I mean, we almost burned Copernicus and Galileo at the stake. That's right. I mean, God didn't change God's mind on chattel slavery in North America in the 19th century. We developed the consciousness to finally realize, oh, my God, we've been wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it litters our history, which should at least create a measure of humility in Christian ministers to say we've been wrong before, bad wrong before. And when you couple our track record of having to be corrected over time, which is fine, that's human to have to be corrected, but when you couple that with these suicide, sex trafficking, drug addiction, depression rates amongst LGBTQ kids, come on, Mm. somebody have a damn soul and say, this is worthy of re-examination. And I just don't have a lot of time anymore for those who aren't willing to re-examine that. Um, As you started to speak these truths with a capital T, I like to say, um, and you had a you had your parishioners blow back. They, they you had many leave the church. Sure. So, how do you not give up on humanity in that moment? How do you? You're still draw. I'm, I imagine for you as a leader, that must have been 
really disheartening. And, you know, you kind of, I imagine you'd want to go to each one of those people and say, come on, don't you see? But yeah, I, I try that? not. I try not to look at the numbers of my, everybody always points out how many people, uh, even watching the CBS special. That, well, that's why I brought it up. Two thirds of the congregation. Yeah. The reality is that's such an easy straw man for the other side. Because mm. you know what? People may have left my church because I'm a horrible pastor. Okay, I, people might have left the church that I pastored because of LGBT inclusion. Nobody really wants to admit that. So it's easier to say, well, it wasn't what he did, it was how he did it. Mm. And fine, I, I don't care. I don't even care to be a great pastor or a poor pastor anymore. I just want to be a decent human. And I don't care why you left. I don't care why the numbers went down. It's a bit curious that... I had a pretty successful run until that issue, and maybe that issue, I didn't handle the polity of it right, because I just did it and then told them what I had done. I didn't know what the hell to do. All I knew is my two friends called me and and wanted me to do their wedding, and I couldn't say no. Mm -hmm. I wasn't thinking about is CBS that News. started it all? Yeah, yeah. I, mean, that's, I mean, we had been in the process of discernment as a church for about three years, and it was just dragging, languishing on, and finally... The first minister of music I had at Grace Point back in 2003, 2004, was a gay man who was married then. and Married to a woman? Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. Which that's what we did to the gay kids sure. in the evangelical church. They, they had to marry a yeah. woman. And yeah. then, to some degree, hurt her life and theirs and then bring and the kids children. into all of yeah. that. And sure. So, even back then, our church was like forward-thinking enough that I was pushing enough issues that my friend, who was our minister of music, he and I had grown up in the same denomination— he finally began to get some expansive soul sufficient to really examine his own heart and his own honesty and his own willingness to make peace with himself. And he came to me one day, wanted to go to lunch, and we went to lunch. And for 30 minutes, in a pained fashion, I could tell he was trying to tell me something. And I finally reached across the table and said, are you trying to tell me you're gay? And he just broke down and wept. And I remember looking at him, this is 2005, I looked at him then and I said, it's okay, make this church go through this. I was ready way back then. I'm like, make this church face this. Get it out of the abstract, flesh it out in the life of somebody they love. And he just, he didn't have this, and I don't blame him, he didn't have the psychological wherewithal back then, the bandwidth to go through that. He was already so tortured. And yeah. He ended up going through a divorce and it was really, really hard. It was really hard, and we got to bit back to business as usual. He was divorced. He was now a gay man, and the church just moves on. But I, I couldn't in my mind. I knew what a good person he was and how far removed we were from where we needed to be. And Anyway, that rocked on. 2012, the Marriage Amendment Act is being talked about a lot, and it's it's on the, you know, on the front burner. And one of the, one of the people that came to our church as a, a country music star, every church in Nashville has country music stars at them. And one of our country music stars, a really wonderful person, she made mention to the BBC because they asked her, "What do you think about the same-sex marriage amendment?" And she, she made a positive, a generally positive statement about it. Um, she's a very forward-thinking person and a good person. And boy, that hit like hell. And within the week, Westboro Baptist Church from Kansas decided to come picket us on her statement about that. And I was like, good, it's time. I'm, 
our church was the liberal church in town that had the don't ask, don't tell, and gay people function there like normal, but we just didn't talk about it, which is kind of, it is not kind of, it's disingenuous. And, you know, we were, it was like a better position than all the other churches around or most of the other churches around, but it still wasn't what I was satisfied with. And now the same-sex marriage amendment was really pressing the issue because now these people are going to have something very, you know, very fleshed out that they need from us, and that is to be able to enjoy the sacrament of marriage. And so I said, good, all right, let's take advantage of this. So we entered a period of discernment where we were discussing it as a church in 2012. And that finally in 2014, it was just dragging on and on. We lost probably a fourth to a third of our people just because we were having the discussion. And then in 2014, December, I'm sitting in my office and I'm writing a paper for grad school at Vanderbilt. I had gone back. I'm always a educating myself and I'd gone back over there and I was writing a paper and it was on LGBTQIA, A is for ally, A is for Amos, who was one of the 8th century prophets of Israel, a big social justice prophet. And I was writing this paper about how the Hebrew prophets would have been the loudest on LGBTQT advocacy. And I'm writing the paper and a friend of mine calls, who's a mutual friend with my former minister of music, you know, nine years, eight, seven years removed from him leaving us. And my friend said, hey, you know, Michael's getting married in a couple weeks. I said, I know, I'm going to be there. He said, well, I just want you to know, I mean, the wedding had been planned for a year. They sent out the announcement in December of 13. It's a big wedding. And they were going to get married at the Country Music Hall of Fame with 300 people there. It's going to be a big wedding. And I always regretted that he didn't ask me, but I knew he didn't ask me because he didn't want to upset the apple cart politically of what I was going through at the church and all of what our church was dealing with. But I was going to go to the wedding, and my our mutual friend said, I just wanted you to know the minister that was going to do the wedding just backed out. And he doesn't have a minister. That minister was kind of under personal pressure about the whole thing. And he backed out two weeks before. What would Jesus do? <laughs> And my friend said, I'm not putting any pressure on you, but I just thought you'd want to know. And I got off the phone, and I was immediately tormented. I was just like, this is just bullshit. And I just kind of steep in that for about 15 or 20 minutes, just writhing in my chair, wanting to call my friend and say, I'll do it. And finally, I... I think I just got to get back to my paper. I go back to my paper, and I'm writing a stupid paper on LGBTQIA advocacy and how this was God's heart. And I just slammed my Mac Air shut, and I thought, you fucking hypocrite. And I picked up the phone, and I, I called my friend, and I he answered, and I said, hey, I hear there's a big day coming up in a couple weeks. He said, yeah. He said, you're going to be there, aren't you? I said, yes, I'm definitely going to be there. He was like, good, and... I kind of gave him space to tell me about the minister, and he wouldn't because he was still caring for me. And I finally said, I, I hear you need a officiant. And just like he had done nine years before, or seven, eight years before at the table at the restaurant, he just started crying, and I started crying. And I went and did the wedding, and that's the, that's the, that was the shot heard around the world, sadly, that that would be heard around the county, but it was, and... That's what started it all, just me. I, I mean, I just, how did I tell him no without losing my own soul? So. Dare to love. Yeah. So that's the story in a nutshell.
And so now your mission is you are going around opening up churches. Is it opening churches, facilitating churches? Well, that facilitating churches that are in this conversation. Okay. Because where we were, we were, you know, the mainline denominations like uh, ELCA Lutheran, Episcopals, Methodist, Presbyterians. Uh, these folks have been ahead of us, the UCC and this conversation. But even they, I mean, the United Methodist Church is possibly dividing over this in February coming up. They're they're still wrestling with the subject. The PCUSA, the Presbyterian Church, uh, they, from the top, just like the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church, these denominations have said it is okay to give full inclusion to the LGBT, to ordain them, to marry them, but we'll leave it to the autonomy of the local church. So, you know, as far ahead as the main line is of us, still it's way behind the idea of full inclusion. When people say, what do you mean by full inclusion? Full inclusion means a transgender person duly qualified could take my place as senior pastor. And if that's not true, then it's not full inclusion. Just get over it. Quit talking about it. It's done. But the church is, you know, just now really, really moving into this. And I come from an evangelical background. And that's the churches that I travel around and spend time facilitating the conversation with their leadership and the church, just trying to get them to open to this idea, just at least discuss this. And there are tons of ministers who are miserable because they are inclusive in their heart, but they're scared to death to make this move in the pulpit because they know they would lose their jobs. And these are good people, good men and women who have kids in college and they've got all their eggs in one basket vocationally. And... You know, masters of divinities don't transfer very well to other vocations, and these people are scared. And so I spend tons of my time with those ministers just trying to help them find articulation for their own feelings. And then, honestly, find the courage, find the balls to stand up and do the right thing. And we are, I mean, within our, within our religious myth, there is this thing called a cross. And... You know, I, I wrestled for a long time when I finally realized, well, God didn't need a cross to be able to forgive us. I mean, does God really have to torture somebody to be able to have you with us? That wasn't the meaning of the cross. But there still is a cross, this willingness to suffer to some degree for the sake of the other. And I'm just going around trying to help my minister friends pick up the cross because kids are dying while we're trying to find courage. Children, I... Tons of my work is that, dealing with ministers and churches. Tons of my work is just online, like pastor at large. There are so many people that I engage online that I end up Skyping and phone conversations with um, teenage kids who are suicidal, attempting suicide. A dad two days ago called me. His 19-year-old had just overdosed and thankfully made it through. And when they went to get her at the psychiatric hospital two weeks later, she didn't want to go home because she had found a place for the first time that accepted her for being gay. And this evangelical father was calling saying, I, I believe it's sin. I don't know what to do, but I don't want my daughter to die. Help me. I mean, it's, it's an epidemic. And so I spend, gosh, half my day just in those kinds of phone conversations with people, helping them process and helping them keep their 14-year-old alive who doesn't want to live. Do you think we'll get there? Oh, we're going to get there. Absolutely, we're getting there. We are getting there. I do believe in humanity. I believe humanity was created in the image of God, and I believe we are slowly, in fits and starts, three steps forward, two steps backward, moving into that image. 
I have so much hope. Sexuality, I think, is going to be slower than race and even gender. Because I do believe somehow in our humanity, we carry so much shame in our bodies. And I think one of the most sensitive areas of our body is our sexuality. It blends our bodies and our psyches. And I think that our sexuality, not just physiologically, is freighted with more nerve endings. I think psychically it's freighted with a lot of nerve endings. And the sensitivities and the vulnerabilities that we all carry in our bodies and in our sexuality, um, I, I think, makes this issue go slowly. Because we are already all, to some degree, impaired on that level. And so if we find somebody different from us, somebody who's trans or bi or pan or homosexual, if they're different from us and they're a smaller group, then we can use them as a scapegoat. And we can project all of our own angst and insecurities and misgivings onto them and kind of relieve ourselves for a moment by sending them off into the desert as scapegoats. Yes. It's so simple. It's sophomore it's tried, psychology. Yeah, it's tried and true, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So I think this, this was going to go slow, but sure. Yeah. How can people find you? Uh, that's a good question. I haven't been easy to find. I only, at this point, have a private fan base or a what's Facebook page. That's one of those that you get 5,000 friends and then, then it's up. So people can always send me a friend request on that. I haven't done a fan page yet to like have 50,000 followers, which I guess I probably could have. But my work really is less even about advocacy than it is the past. It's turned into this pastoral care network. And I almost can't take on more than what I'm doing doing right now can they attend and, wherever you might be yeah so i so i i spend part of my time here in nashville at grace point church we just moved into an incredible new space on charlotte avenue called the clementine it's an old methodist church that's been renovated into a cool event space so i'm there i'm the founding pastor there i'm right now looking for a new lead pastor to kind of take my place and run the day-to-day because -day, i just don't have time to do that anymore and my heart and Giftings is kind of pulling me toward pastoring this at-large community of kids. These families, most of the ones that I deal with, live in small towns in Idaho and Arkansas, and they're 150 miles from the nearest inclusive church. So I'm what they've got. Uh, and I also am spending time now 10 to 15 days a month in Seattle, your old stomping grounds, mm -hmm. in an area called Bothell mm -hmm. at East Lake Community Church. A friend of mine, Ryan Meeks, we pretty much did inclusion together three years ago. They did it two weeks after we did. When they did it, they had seven campuses and were running 5,500 people on Sunday. They now have one campus and are running three to 500 people. So the first wave of us who made this move were kind of like cannon fodder. Mm -hmm. And we just, it's amazing we're still surviving, but there's a next wave behind us that we're really enthused by and they're doing better than we did. So. I'm at Eastlake, uh, I'm at Grace Point. I also spend probably a week a month down to the church in Atlanta called The Village, Pastor Ray Waters. Um, they also did inclusion shortly after we did. So there's just, we're kind of a spiritual collective and I rotate amongst those. And then on Facebook, you can follow me even if you don't friend me. Although when people send me a friend request and say, I'd really like to be your friend, if they're an advocate and an ally for these gay kids, I will always find somebody in the 5,000 to bump. Because I have detractors that are still called friends, and I, I kind of enjoy like 
unfriending them. <laughs> That's a bad pleasure. I'll put links to everything on Hey Human yeah. Podcast, too, so people can find you more easily, more readily. Well, I very much appreciate you being here. This has been an incredible conversation. I'm glad you're on the planet. Yeah, thank you. I love, I love, your, I love what you're doing. Thank you. Um, it's really beautiful, and you're really good at it. Thank you. Too. Not everybody's kind. good at this. This is a tough gig. It's a different art form to belly up to a microphone and have these kinds of conversations. But God, I'm telling you, and this is what I do on Facebook, stories move the needle. Um, Parker Palmer, one of my favorite authors, says it's amazing that a religion like Christianity, so steeped in the idea of incarnation, so often gets lost in disembodied concepts. Mm-hmm. To, yeah. to humanize the stories, to get the abstract into flesh tones, I think the needle moves most when we have to engage the story and the reality of another person's life as opposed to, you know, some theoretical idea. It's also very hard to hate someone when you know their heart. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you're really listening, you hear yourself and the other person. There's Isn't that the truth? It's impossible not to. Mm. Gosh, that's so true. Stan, thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was fun. Absolutely. Thanks, everybody, for listening.